Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Policy Viz podcast. This is season four of the show. I hope you all had a great, safe summer and are looking forward to a nice, cool fall. Just a few changes coming up in the show this next year. I'm going to slow things down a little bit and I'm going to go to an every other week format still coming out on Tuesdays. You'll have something to look forward to. I also have a bunch of really interesting guests uh, scheduled for this year. I'm going to talk more about data and communicating data and also talk about uh, some new tools that are out there and coming out. So some exciting stuff coming up for the fall. And so I'm really excited to kick off this season with uh, Hillary Mason from Cloudera. I'm a big fan of Hillary because she's done awesome work. And I'm excited to talk about all the new things that she's doing. So Hillary, hi, how are you? Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Um, it's great to talk to you. How was your summer? We'll start, we'll start with the summer. We'll look back. How was your summer? <laughs> Summer's been lovely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, good weather, spending time outside, enjoying New York when everyone else goes abroad. It's, uh, it's really nice. <laughs> nice. Yeah, when it clears out, it's like the time you can actually ride the, the subway and not, um, not be boxed in somewhere. Exactly. And no wait for brunch. It's, uh, it's <laughs> right. lovely to be here. Right. That's nice. That's great. Um, and looking forward to fall, I assume? Yeah, fall is my favorite season. All right. All right. Good. So why don't we start, if you could maybe, uh, for folks who don't know uh, about your background, um, maybe you could talk a little bit about your background and where you come from and, and what you're doing now. Yeah, I mean, I'll try and keep that brief and hopefully interesting. And I started in machine learning about 20 years ago um, and have been working in data science in startups and other contexts for a long time. Most recently, I'd founded a company called Fast Forward Labs, where we do applied machine learning research and advising. And that means we have our own program of research that our customers subscribe to, and it gives them insight into machine learning and data science capabilities that are possible and are becoming useful. Uh, we aim to be about six months to two years ahead of the market. And then we also advise them on their practice, meaning about half technical practice, um, these are things like, what algorithm do I use? How do I architect these data pipelines? And then half, um, everything around the technical practice that's not technical. So questions about people, processes, organizational structures, all of the things that are actually hard about doing <laughs> data science work well. Right. Um, and then we were acquired by Cloudera a year and a day ago. Oh, wow. um, All right. Congrats. That's great. Well, thank you. And so we've been <laughs> continuing that work inside of Cloudera, and I've taken on a role as the general manager for the entire machine learning business, including our software platform as well, Cloudera Data Science Workbench. Nice. So you've been doing the machine learning stuff, as you said, for a long time. So can you maybe give us a quick rundown of what you've seen over the last couple of years and where you think things are headed? I mean, it seems like one of those areas that's changing rapidly right now, but you've had a nice long view of it. So where have you see things come from and where are they going? That's a really nice question. And, you know, I've been uh, a practitioner in this space for a long time. And in fact, we've all been using machine learning uh, in our everyday lives effectively for you know, going on 20 years at this point, at least. And, you know, we take a lot of it for granted. But when you think about your email spam filter, like that is a fantastic example of, of sort of everyday machine learning. And we're starting to see a broadening of the applications for ML and data science. Uh, but it's not 
the hype has outpaced a lot of the uh, the actual capabilities, and in many cases, you know, the best approaches are still sometimes the simpler ones. Um, and so, I'd say that we are not at the end state for what the technology is capable of. It's still transforming the way we architect systems around it is changing. Um, but we're still at the beginning of understanding how to effectively use even the capabilities we have now in a business process or a product context. Um, and so what I'm trying to say is that we still have a lot of growing up to do and the technology is continuing to change while we're going through that process. Right. You also mentioned that a lot of the work you do is around the people um, in these organizations. Can you tell us a little bit about what that entails? Do you find that you have to spend your time sort of convincing people of the, the capabilities of ML? Are you educating them on how to, to implement the models? Or, or what is it like with working with people when you're trying to do this sort of work? So it's a really fun place to be working with people because there are many companies that have great data science practice, but they are not the same. So if you were a software engineer and you take a job at one company or another, you're essentially going to use the same kind of process for your work. There are more or less the same expectations of you know, how you're going to be managed, what you'll be delivering, what you're responsible for, what other teams are responsible for, how you relate to them. In data science and machine learning, we do not have that standard set of practices and best practices evolved yet. So a data science role in one company can be quite different from one in another company. The way teams are constructed is quite different. So does data engineering live on the data science team? Does the data science team live in the COO or CFO's office? Or does it live in the head of product office? Or is it in engineering? Like All of these things are valid approaches, but they optimize for somewhat different things. And then we come back to, you know, what are your data scientists even doing? Where do they come from? Because you've only been able to get a degree in data science for the last five years or so. And those degrees tend to be pretty diverse in what they teach. So some are essentially statistics dressed up a bit. Some are computer science dressed up a bit. Um, so yeah, there's, there's not this kind of standard practice, which means mm. that each company has to make an artful decision about how they want to build a practice. Uh, so we end up spending quite a bit of time on that, as well as the really interesting technical and strategic questions around their data. So what are you going to do with the data and how are you going to accomplish it? Right. Um, a couple of years ago, you had written a paper with DJ Patel about data science teams within organizations. Um Part of that paper was DJ talking about his experience at LinkedIn and having these these data scientists and data science teams sort of strewn about the organization and and sort of the the evolution of that. Um, have you seen an evolution in how data scientists or you know computer scientists or data visualization experts or whatever have you seen a change in how those skill sets and those people are being used in the organizations that you're working with? So thank you for reading that. Um, I'll, I'll tell <laughs> one you. Of favorite, <laughs> one of my favorite papers about like, how do you, just like you said, this is sort of relatively new. So how do you bring these various groups together, right? You've got analysts and data scientists and I don't know, public relations and marketing. How do you get them all on the same page? Well, that is the question. Um, so DJ <laughs> and I actually wrote that because we were both giving this kind of advice quite often and didn't have something written down that we could refer to. Mm. Um, 
We also thought it would be useful as a prop for a data scientist or a data science leader in an organization to have something they could wave in their boss's face and say, you know, here's how people do this um, to try to get to a perhaps more effective um, type of, of organizational structure. We certainly have seen a fair bit of maturity and Again, it's it's not evenly distributed. So some companies we work with are incredibly mature. They're inventing the approaches they need. They're optimizing for what they need to optimize for. And then I have others where they're just hiring their first data science leader, and they don't even know what that person really needs to be doing. And so I'd say that we're getting there. And I expect in another five years, you would think that that little mini book is a bizarre sort of useless archetype because everything in it is common knowledge. (laughs) Um, But we're not there yet. Okay. Well, so we'll just, we'll just root for that day when that book is no longer needed. But until then, it still should be, I think, required reading for any organization working with data, really. Um, So let's switch gears a little bit because a new thing that you're working on that I think was announced earlier this summer was a project with DJ Patel um, and a a few others, I think, right, on uh, on data ethics. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that work and where that is and where it's heading? Absolutely. Um, And yes, this is work co-authored with DJ Patel and Mike Lukidis, who has been our editor at O'Reilly for a long time. Mike edited that first piece of work as well. Um, but he's uh, he's a co-author on this one. So we were once again uh, thinking about the issues of the practice of ethics in data science. And what I mean by that is that we've reached a point in the use of the technology where it's very clear that it has many unethical applications. And also that society broadly is still immature in our ability to have conversations about what we will accept and what we won't accept. Um, And that bar for what is acceptable with data science has been moving over time. So it's not even, you know, a clear, bright line. And, you know, one of the, the things that I've been very concerned with is that we have many people leading uh, work in fairness, accountability, and transparency. We have plenty of people doing broad critiques of, you know, the kinds of behavior we see from Facebook and how their policies and products are influencing our society. But what I haven't really seen Um, is a set of practices for people who are actually doing the work, putting their hands on the keyboard, a set of tools for that group, um, myself among them, to even have the conversation about ethics. And so what we've tried to pull together in this second mini book and series of essays is not the answer. I happen to believe that well-intentioned people can come to different conclusions around some of these questions, but rather a set of tools we can use to productively have the conversation. And once again, this was designed to be the kind of thing that a data scientist can bring to their manager and say, look, it's important that we have these conversations now. Uh, And hopefully this is working its way into the discussion of how we practice data science. Mm. Do you think there's a, a role? Well, I'm guessing you do. But is there a role for data scientists to have training in data ethics as part of their degree requirements? So, of course, um, and right. DJ has been a huge supporter of uh, and promoter of programs that do exactly this. 
Um, but the reality is that most of us who are data scientists do not have degrees in data science. And so, you know, I have a team of what I think of as fairly accomplished and extremely talented data scientists, machine learning researchers here with me at Cloudera. Not one of us has a degree in data science. We have computer mm-hmm. scientists, physicists, neuroscientists, cognitive scientists, electrical engineers. Um, so, Going forward, it's important that ethics is part of that curriculum and is not, you know, we can't say, oh, we're just building the technology. We're not responsible for how it's used. That's not responsible at all. Um, But that doesn't solve the problem that most practitioners today have, which is that they don't have a formal data science, and I'm putting that in air quotes, which you can't see, education, (laughs) because you've only been able to have that education for the last five years. And I'm actually not a fan of restricting these job opportunities only to people to happen to have had the privilege of doing a master's in it. Um, This is a great field for anyone who is quantitatively and, you know, also creatively inclined, but we need, we need tools and expectations of the way we do the work that supports ethical outcomes. And so we have to just make it normal and not worth thinking about that we have a conversation about what can go wrong uh, when we start a project. Right. You have in one of the um, in one of the essays that you've that you've written, there was a checklist. Right? Yes. Um, the scouting principles, which which I love that it's kind of loosely based off of Gawande's work, which is like one of my favorite books about the medical field. But how do you think about developing a checklist like this for people who are working with data? So I'm going to start by telling you where that checklist came from, because one of the the really fun things in the process of writing these essays has been um, sitting down with DJ and Mike and finding areas where we disagree. Mm. And, you know, we came into this conversation around oaths for data science. And I really, you know, said, I don't really mind the discussion of oaths. And I think it's a fine thing to say, I'm not going to do anything wrong, but I don't think it'll actually change anything. And I think it may, in fact, distract from the work we need to do to change practice. And we had um, one of my favorite conversations of the year, really trying to work through our disagreement around this topic and where we ended up was this notion that oaths are fine, um, but we need something more concrete and checklists seem to be the best tool for that kind of thinking. So saying rather than making a grand declaration at one point in time that I'm going to behave in a certain way, I'm going to take these little decisions and I'm just going to check myself every time I make a dis- make a, a decision or work on something where it might be relevant Um, against my own standards that I've committed to on a regular basis. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that's what the checklist is intended to be. And so if you're thinking of using one, it's really something you can add into the data science development process. So when you go from idea to error metrics for validating that you have a solution to potential product uses, Um, of your data science work, you can also add in that checklist that says, you know, am I respecting the data that has been given to me for this work? You know, am I using it in a way that is sustainable? You know, all of these questions can fall out of Mm -hmm. that. Okay, great. So I will point people to all the work that you guys are doing on the data ethics issue. And I want to turn to one last question, because on your website, 
which I'll also link to, uh, you say that you are inherently internally an optimist. Um, and I want to ask you about that in a particular view. So I don't want to talk about uh, politics or anything, but I, I, I do want to talk, ask you about what seems to be sort of a backlash against science and against research and against, in some ways, against facts. And so I want to ask you how you sort of maintain your optimism. Being a data scientist, like working with data um, and working with facts, like how do you how do you think about these sorts of things and how do you maintain your optimism and, and what are things that you think people can do to sort of fight against some of this this pushback that we're that we're seeing? <laughs> I love this question. <laughs> um yeah, I, I happen to be naturally an optimist, and I tend to look um, generally for areas where I can do work that promotes that optimism. But to think specifically about your question, you know, how do we live in this environment where people are pushing back against rationality, against science, where people are using those tools in a fairly negative way? Um, and it really comes down to, like, I believe optimism is the only rational philosophy because it is the mental attitude and tool set we need to build the future we actually want to live in. And I try and do work that supports creating that future world that I want to be part of. I think that is what it really comes down to in that if you're only negative, you're only critiquing, you're tearing things down, it is, I mean, I would find that intolerable (laughs) also just from a living in that way, it just seems so negative. Um, But, but it really means that there's always hope and there always is that potential for a bright future ahead. And no matter, I know you said no politics, but no matter what challenges we are dealing with today, I really do believe that that is a future that is attainable and it's optimism that, uh, that gives me that belief. I love it. I love it. But I want to ask, I mean, maybe you don't run into people who sort of have these fundamental, I mean, there are questions that we ask about science, but these sort of like, you know, not believing in facts. So when you are thinking about, or when you're working with an organization, do you ever run into these basic disbelief in facts? What would your thoughts be for someone whose job it is to try to convince people that the data provides evidence for this thing as a fact? You know, I think like new journalists, for example, are facing this probably daily, um, where they are analyzing a, a story, they're talking to people, they're looking through through data, and they're presenting as facts, and and there's just this like, you know, belief that that's not true. Like that's, you know, the, the fake news or whatever it is. So how do you think about inherently as an optimist, but how do you think about trying to communicate information to people who may not believe it just because they're just going to ignore it. It's not a fact the way they look at it. Well, I find that to be quite a challenge and there is no easy answer because if there was, we would all be doing that. Um, like you have to have a shared belief that there are a set of things that are true. Mm. Uh, however, I think that, you know, there's plenty of work that shows that the information landscape we live in guides what we believe to be true. And so, again, just trying to create the information landscape as much as possible that supports this notion of there being facts and there being truth. And, you know, in many cases, these are specific facts and specific Mm. truth. The one thing I'll add to this, because 
you know, there's a difference between being a journalist writing an article that's going to go out to the broad public where that one article as an artifact has to suffice for everyone and having a conversation with somebody mm. individually, yeah. specifically around data, it is being able to understand that data itself is an imperfect representation of truth. And there often is a fair bit of context. And there are reasons why people bring these beliefs to these conversations. And so trying to be patient to not just, you know, try and reduce things to facts and interpretation, um, I have found is somewhat successful. But these are you know, I think you've hit on the greatest challenge of our moment is how do we create that information environment where we can even believe that there is truth, much less what that truth is. Well, maybe we could just get everybody to be an optimist like you, Hillary, and it'll all just be, we'll all just be happier and better. Well, (laughs) I I actually think we need a portfolio of attitudes. And on my team here, I certainly have people (laughs) who range from uh, a little bit more cynical to to quite optimistic. It's something that uh, I think we need both perspectives. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been uh, really interesting. And I'm looking forward to seeing um, especially the data ethics uh, work. I assume you're going to keep, is the plan to keep writing more pieces on that? Absolutely. So the set of essays we have right now actually is available on Kindle um, on Amazon.com as of this week. And we are going to be soliciting contributions from other people as well and hopefully building more of a corpus of work there. So if anyone listening is, uh, is particularly passionate about an aspect of this, I'd love to hear from you. Um, and yes, there is more to Terrific. Come. Well, I look forward to reading it and I will uh, post all these links on the show notes. And if uh, you're listening to this and want to get involved, please do connect with Hillary or uh, DJ or O'Reilly Media as well. Well, thanks for tuning into this week's episode. Uh, I hope you all again had a great summer, ready for a great fall. So uh, until next time, this has been the Policy Viz podcast. Thanks so much for listening.